0: What happens when you make a decision that costs your company $100 million? A lot of us don't survive that kind of failure, much less thrive. So how did today's guest log so many successful ventures that $100 million seems like a blip on the radar?
1: I was okay with being the wacky one who found the crazy ideas because I grabbed that space and people were like, okay, I guess that's what she does. Yeah.
0: Welcome to 360 Real Time, a steelcase podcast with behind the scenes conversations on what we're learning about the places where people work, learn, and heal. I'm your host, Katie Pace. You've probably heard of our guest today. She started in broadcasting and moved to public relations, just like me. She describes her career as a change maker in chief in her new book, Imagine It Forward. In her nearly three decades at GE, she led efforts to accelerate new growth and innovation, seeded new businesses, and enhance GE's brand value and inventive culture. Her roles included President of Integrated Media at NBC Universal and Chief Marketing Officer and GE's first woman vice chair. I'm delighted to be here today with Beth Comstock. Beth, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Beth is going to tell us about how she gets some of her crazy ideas, plus we'll hear that $100 million story and find out what trends she's watching right now. First, we want to thank you if you're a subscriber to 360 Real Time, or if you've rated or reviewed this podcast. If you haven't, please take a second to do that. It really helps others find it. So Beth, I really have to say I found your book totally authentic and compelling, and I I really, really enjoyed it. I read it, like, basically cover to cover in one weekend... So you seem to recognize and thrive during this macro shift in business from execution and perfection focused to this need for innovation and creative thinkers. I really think it's interesting that you define this process called discovery in your book, which takes time to explore the world around you. And I'm curious if you could define that process a little bit about how you find these new trends, how you find what's next. And then I'm also curious, like, how do you practice that today?
1: Yeah, um, I'm glad you pointed that one out. To me, that's uh, one of the uh, most essential parts of what we need to do to get ready for the future in work, and I think it's one of the joys of work and life is to make room for discovery. What does that mean? I think it means you have to get out of your day-to-day, get out of the zero focus that we, we all think we must have to do all the time, and give yourself room to pick your head up, get out into the world see things that are new, that challenge your point of view, are weird, I'd say especially if they're weird, and um, I I found it a way of a practice, Um, so one of the things I I was able to create as a practice was um, really to just find time, and I I would, I sort of challenge people, I guarantee you have 10% of your time that you're already committed doing things you already know how to do, and meetings you already know how to do, reading the same things, take back that 10% of time and get out and discover new things. And when you pick your head up, you see connections, and connections make way for patterns, and you start to see where things are going.
0: Yeah, I love when in your book you talk about field trip Fridays. I thought, oh, that's so great. Like, we're going to start to get out and do field trip Fridays.
1: I think that is a great way at work to do discovery, is to go with an entire team. Even better yet, take a customer with you and get out there and explore things together uh, to see where things are going. I mean, uh, whether it's uh, one Friday a month to get out and see trends or something a little bit more long-reaching and and more elaborate. I remember uh, taking a group to Israel to uh, study non-hierarchical yeah. learning by living in the military barracks for a couple of weeks. Uh, I took a digital team to South Korea to judge yeah. boy band competitions to figure out yeah. where the new consumer trends were coming. So. They can be as simple as going to a new store in your town or going to visit a researcher at a community college, or they can be as elaborate, if your budget allows, to going on a field trip to South Korea.
0: Early in your career, you moved to New York to work for NBC, and I love this part where you write about you received a Ph.D. in corporate gatekeepers. And I think any one of us who have had a stifling boss or even a a teammate that's a naysayer could really relate to that. And you ended up leaving that role. But later in the book, you write that gatekeepers are important for the creative process. So I'm curious if you can talk about how you approach these corporate gatekeepers and why they might be beneficial to the creative process.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think it's it's recognizing that um, there are parts you have to work around and parts that can help you. And so in the book, I talk about gatekeepers versus goalkeepers. And gatekeepers are the ones that don't let you go through the gate. They basically say no. They don't want a new way of thinking or imaginative new ideas. And a goalkeeper is somebody who helps you make a goal. They're there to kind of champion you and make sure everything's clear so you can make that goal. And most of us in our career, when you say the word gatekeeper, I'm sure everybody has someone in their head that they're thinking of. Ah, that's who I'm thinking of. And um, it's those people that we try and they just always say no. Once I had a gatekeeper and I actually left a job I had because I felt I could never go forward. But with enough of those experiences, I think you also start to learn, hey, I have more power here than I think. There are maybe ways to work around it, to keep trying before I give up. And um, to me, I sort of came up in my head with this notion of no is not yet. This idea that mm-hmm. the first time you get a no, to me, is just an invitation to keep trying. Because often when you first hit up somebody with an idea, it's the first time they're hearing it. Maybe you're, you're not so good at telling it yet. It's not clear. Right. And so I uh, shared a story in the book of uh, earlier in my career, I was pitching an idea when I was at NBC for what we called the NBC Experience Store. And I pitched it with a team. And the first time our boss told us, no, we went back to more work. Second time, by the third time, he he finally greenlit it. And he looked, I, I never will forget, he looked at me and he said, you know what? I'm saying yes. I tried to say no. You made it so hard to say no but I got to give it to you and the team. You guys really did your homework. I believe your passion. And what I realized is we needed that feedback loop to make it better. Yeah. His no brought out more of a resilience and a persistence in us. And three, he was testing us. He was seeing how much yeah. of a good idea we actually thought it would be. And So many times I see people who get rejected the first time and you never hear from them again. You think, well, I guess they didn't like that idea.
0: Right. So one of the things that I'm really excited to talk to you about is this idea of failure. And I've heard you speak a lot about it. You wrote quite extensively about it in your book. I just feel like it's this cliche that's plopped up in our society that we just you know just fail fast but nobody actually wants to fail and nobody feels good when they fail and no company says well I have sure here's this huge budget go out in there and see if you can fail. And so I'm curious how you look at failure and then really like how do you survive failure?
1: Yeah well I I totally agree with you that notion of um, the kind of fail fast and I'm sure I've said that before many times it makes light of it in some respects. There is a part of truthfulness in that and that you want your failures to be at a smaller scale, you know, everyone wants to avoid the colossal failure. When it costs more, more is at stake. So the idea of making failure more of the way you work, a part of a practice where you're, you're kind of doing it earlier, doing it more often, I think is what I take away from that. What I don't like about it is it's, it makes it sound so easy. Like I fail and now I'm only going to succeed and, right. uh, and it's all going to be so easy. Failure stinks. I mean, it hurts. No one likes to fail. Yeah. Um, it's the, I say it's the F word of business because we just eradicate it. To me, it's about reframing it as, what did you learn? I like in your journey to kind of make change, innovate, the idea of starting with a hypothesis that takes the pressure off of you. You know, what are you going to go test? How will you know what you learned? Some people are very good about saying, you know, how many times did you fail? That way I'll know you really learned. But again, you want to do that at the right stage and not putting so much crazy resources at work that it doesn't justify it. But um, I think it's getting that right. And it's a permission thing. It's back to the permission. It's, it's a mindset shift. You have to give yourself permission to take a risk. And is there a good reason why you're doing it? Do you have a good North Star strategy and clearly a vision? And you don't necessarily have to give up on the vision if one thing you tried to get there didn't work. Okay, what else can I try? How me go back. So there's a real iterative process that failure has to be part
0: of one of the things you write about and that i think we've believed to be true it's just it's this notion of fear right like we're just we're afraid to try and afraid to go after something new so i'm wondering like how do you coach people other than saying you just got to go for it to go for something new especially if you're not a big organization if you don't have a big budget or you don't have a big job
1: yeah and first i would say i did work for a big company GE but we were notoriously cheap, so we never had a big budget either. So I always feel like I have to say, "Big it can big feel brand. our pain." <laughs> yeah, big brand does not equal big budget. And the first thing I'd say is back to that. No, is not yet. And the, I'm a firm believer that constraints fuel creativity. So mm. um, the first thing I'd say is you probably don't need as much money as you think you do. You may not need as many people as you think you do just to get started. Can you just get started and test something small to at least start to learn and get traction? Can you find a partner, somebody else who maybe has resources or capabilities and you come together and do it? Can you build on top of something that someone else has already started? Often we get somewhat territorial, like it has to be totally my creation, my idea, my brilliance. And if you really believe in a better way and see a vision, it's not about your idea. It's about creating the momentum to make it happen. Um, especially in the marketing and brand side, we would often, in the early days, we, we would test with new startup media companies who didn't have an advertising or sponsorship model. They didn't know what to charge. They were a small outlet. So we would go in often as development partners, and we'd say, hey, we'll put the GE brand to work. Let's test and learn together together. We get something out of it as we learn this new platform. Maybe it's a new social media platform. We did this with Instagram, for example. You get something out of it because you get a big brand that's testing. And now whatever we figure out together, you can then go sell it to other customers who want to see that someone else has tried it first.
0: That's a really good idea about starting with those small companies and interesting to hear about. Instagram and think about what it's become today.
1: yeah, exactly. I don't think that <laughs> we would get the same good deal we did uh, in the beginning, but it really for both of us, it was really more about the learning. And the other thing that happened with that, again, this is more related to brand building, but what we also liked about that is because it was a new it was a new partnership. What do you mean? GE's working with Instagram? That's news. It became a way yeah. to amplify the story as well. So we got additional value out of the story and the partnership beyond just the consumers we were reaching by having jet engine photos on Instagram.
0: So one of the other big topics that you write about in your time at NBC, you write a a lot about this idea of conflict. And for myself and for, I'm sure, many of our listeners, this fear of conflict or tension holds us back from our passions, as you just said. And I love when you write, striving to maintain harmony is dangerous. It silos honest criticism and allows people to serve up polite praise for bad ideas, I feel like that's maybe too many meetings that I've actually been in. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could tell us, how are you able to overcome this fear and learn to live with the discomfort of conflict?
1: I don't like conflict. I'm much more diplomat than I am, um, you know, somebody that kind of agitate, but I, I end up calling it the book agitated inquiry because I think it's a yeah. really important part of the process where you're beating up your ideas. And I think it's a couple of things. one, Conflict is inevitable Um, just because people have different passions and different points of view. Your goal in a company is to take that conflict and get to a better place. I'm convinced the more conflict you can navigate and sort of pull the best out of it, the more progress you'll have. But what happens in companies is we get derailed. It's the marketing team against the product team or whatever. It's like my idea against your idea. And and you want the glory or you just see a different way. And what are some ways I've learned to overcome it? As I said, first, just acknowledge it. Recognize it's part of the process. Two, I think you have to uh, invite those critics in. So if, if everybody thinks your idea is a good one and maybe you haven't asked enough people. Um, Are you inviting in people who can beat the idea up? And they have to be constructive. No one wants just a naysayer saying no all the time, like a no but, or here's a solution. Build a bridge to, I don't like this, but here's what I think I'd like to see better. So you're asking your critic to actually play a role. Sometimes I think you also have to get the team out of it's my idea versus yours and remind them what problem are we trying to solve. I think that's a great unifier. Especially if you can put a customer at the heart of that problem because yeah. if you don't have a customer, you don't have business. So you've got to keep bringing it back to the customer or the problem you're trying to solve. I found that a great unifier. And then sometimes you just need to take a break and maybe right. have, make fun of the idea. You know, call the conflict a crazy name. Laugh at it. Um, and just sort of step back from it, diffuse it a bit. But at the end of the day, a good team leader will say, okay, I'm going to hear both sides of view. I, I even like setting up challenger teams or red team, blue team exercises where you encourage the debate. But then, okay, we've heard the sides. I'm the team leader. I've taken it into consideration. We're making this decision. Now we're all going to follow it forward. So you can't leave the room and go, I'm not going to support that. I saw it differently, so I'm going to kill that idea. Like, that doesn't help anybody.
0: So I want to ask you about this story in your book, which you kind of mentioned this in one line, but it, like, really popped out at me, and I can't stop thinking about it. So at one point in your book, you actually tell the story about the eco-imagination launch and how you had to fight some pretty tough battles to convince your colleagues that clean energy was the future, which some of us may sort of laugh at now that, like, you actually had to make that fight. and. When you finally rolled it out, one of your largest customers called Jeff Immelt, the CEO of GE at the time, and they pulled their business. Yet Jeff didn't tell you this for years after, and you didn't actually know that. And I just have to ask you, were you shocked when you finally learned about that? And what did that teach you that even though you had just made this fight, you had just launched this, he, he didn't tell you about that first initial pullback from the customer?
1: Yeah, and you know we had moved forward with EcoImagination, which was our clean tech effort, and we had had a group of enough customers to tell us they were struggling and needed help in clean tech, and they wanted you know models that would be profitable and uh, both ecological and economical. Thus, EcoImagination. So we had enough customer insight to say we'll back this, but not every customer liked it, and clearly we lost yeah. that customer to the tune of a hundred million dollars, which in the scheme of things for GE wasn't going to bring the business down, but it still you, you felt it. And the fact that yeah. Jeff didn't tell us, I always thought it was just a great sign of innovation, championship, of boldness. Because I think one, he knew if we saw that, we would have lost our confidence as a development team. Um, two, I think it would have given ammunition if it were more widely known. It would have given yeah. ammunition to the teams to say, "See, this is the stupidest idea ever. We we've just lost this big client," and. We were getting momentum, and uh, I mean, there were clearly some people who knew it It wasn't like, you know, it was was, just he knew, but but he was able to contain it to help give us the momentum because he saw enough of our customers seeing that they needed it. It would have been so easy for him to say, oh my God, this is the end of the world, or we can't have this, but he also saw there was a bigger opportunity, and oh, by the way, Ended up for the company over a 15 year period generating, you know, over 250 billion dollars of revenue. So I think the trade off was okay.
0: Yeah, the trade off was okay to me. It was wow, that was really bold leadership. And that's a lesson of if and when is a you as a leader really do believe in something, it's okay to protect your team a little bit. Quite honestly, I thought that was interesting that you told that story with the eco-imagination, because I think you could see how you did that later on in your career for some of your teams.
1: Yeah, exactly. You have to. I mean, you have to champion the risk takers reasonably, right? I mean, I think people get that confused a little bit, too. It's not like just just go be innovative for the sake of being innovative. It's in service of moving the company forward. It's part of a broader mission and strategy. And so you got to make sure those two things are aligned, but you do have to back the risk takers.
0: Absolutely. So this is Steelcase 360 Real Time, and at Steelcase, we spend a lot of time thinking about how the physical environment can support the ways people need to work. So a lot of our listeners are interested in this digital transformation, the complexity of work today, and then thinking about that in terms of how their physical environment will need to change. And you mentioned the physical environment a few times throughout your book. But I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more and maybe, you know, just anecdotally, like if and or how you've seen the places where people work impact that creative process.
1: Yeah, I love this question. I mean, I've really evolved my thinking based on those experiences. I mean, for one, I think people need different spaces for different kinds of work. I'm just convinced of that. You know, I think you see in most offices that have gone to open office plans, there's just a huge premium for the conference rooms because you also need times for people to get together. And you need times for solitary reflection. You need times for heavy focus. You need times just to kind of shoot the breeze, have fun, catch up. And I, I'm, I love that you guys are creating this future, but I think for most of us at work, we're just on the cusp of some big breakthroughs here. It's a lot about psychology, human behavior, the interactive science, it's the physical material, all these things come together. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, part of what I wrote the book about was sort of saying, we got to fight back a bit here against the, we're still like having the effects of the industrial revolution in business. Now we've got the machine age of, you know, data machine age and our models haven't changed. We're not just cogs in a wheel. We're just not containers that, you know, need to be slot into a box somewhere. We need to be vibrant, thriving humans. We need time to focus and we need time to wallow in thought. We need time to write. We need spaces like White Wall. So that would be the office spaces I've seen that create more fluidity to how people spend their day. I think the future of work is much more about fluid professional definitions. It's about mission-based teams that you may have functional expertise, but you come together to solve a mission. And that means you sit in different places to solve that problem than you do when you're going deep in your expertise. And so again, I think we need to think about the outcomes and the ways to work to get there and then develop our space and our experience around that. And I'm sure you guys are doing that.
0: Yeah, that's great. We are. I mean, we're talking a lot about team-based work being the future. There's been a lot written about team-based work. And I think the issues driving that are the need for innovation, the need for creativity, dealing with the fourth industrial revolution and digital transformation, all of those. Yeah, I, say. I absolutely agree. Yep. I have two questions that are, are mostly just about you that you write about in the book or that you often speak about. And the first one is, you confess that one of your early fears you had to conquer was this notion of introversion. Like you write that you actually overcame introversion. And a couple of years ago, we did a bunch of work with Susan Kane when her book came out. And I'm wondering what your advice to introverts working in the business climate today that can feel really biased towards extroverts.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think for a long time, business has been just modeled as an extrovert arena. I mean, think about it. It's like the gladiator pit and, you know, you're duking it out. And <laughs> if, if <laughs> yeah. you're an introvert, yeah, right. I mean, I know, gee, we even had a room called The Pit. Um, oh, and, gosh. And, yeah. yeah it be very intimidating if you weren't extroverted to have to go into The Pit. I remember once I think I put in the book, there was one of these, like, silly motivational posters in the back of one of the rooms that like you know one of those eat or get eaten you know so like oh, oh, everyone you go into yeah. it they have that very different from the the you know kind of uh, startup posters we imagine or we saw in the Facebook movie but um I do think um as an introvert one I, I talked about being introverted one because it was just something I thought I had to I had to overcome and embrace equally. And I think it is that point, like quiet people are in our midst. And that's why Susan's book was so helpful because it was about being quiet. And there are times when in your team, you need the quiet voices, the quiet leadership, because they're not the biggest voices in the room. Pretty certain they're going to be listening. They're going to be synthesizing. They're good observers. How do you bring that in? To me, it's a broader issue of, are you bringing in all the best perspectives into business making and decision making? And uh, introvert, extrovert is just one lens of looking at it. And introverts, I think it's, um, there's an extrovert part of you in there somewhere. You have to summon it. You have to give yourself permission to kind of take it one step at a time. For myself, it was like putting an idea out there, even though I was afraid to, or I felt no one would hear me. Um, So you have to challenge yourself sometimes just to, you know, kind of be a bit more extroverted, to be able to be heard and for people to appreciate the contributions you have.
0: One of the things that I was really struck with after reading your book was that it's not a women's leadership book. You don't explicitly talk about your role as one of the only women leaders at GE, but yet it's sort of this implicit theme throughout your book. And I, as I was read it, I thought, well, gosh, I wonder if being one of the only women leaders— At times, not always, because you have some other strong women alongside you at times, but at times it felt like you were one of the only women leaders. Is that one of the reasons that you considered yourself the outsider inside?
1: For sure that fueled that perspective. I, I, um, I talk in the book about an outsider inside, and it's really this ability to have the perspective. And I think back to the discovery and being able to pull in trends from the outside world and make them resonate inside. You have to have that translation function, so you have to be enough outside to see it and then enough inside to speak the language. And I think that having, you know, been a woman at a part time in business when there weren't as many women, I think also the fact that I came up in business first as a communicator, then as a marketer, somebody who was seen Mm -hmm. as more creative, all those things gave me a bit of an outsider's perspective and seen as an outsider in a heavy tech financial oriented company. And so in some ways I think I learned to use this to my advantage. I was able to become even more creative. I was okay with being the wacky one who found the crazy ideas because I grabbed that space and people were like, okay, I guess that's what she does. Um, In some ways, I might have had, I don't know, I've often asked myself, did I have an easier place because those things came together? I mean, I had to fight for it. I document the struggle, but... I do think it gives you an, uh, a different perspective being different in an organization. And that's why I'm like intent on fighting for it. Um, yeah. You need different. Trust me. I used to say I'd love nothing more than to bring a bunch of marketers around the table. I'm sure we'd convince ourselves we're brilliant, but um, yeah. we're not. Right. Uh, and you need to bring a lawyer in, you need to bring a designer in, you need to bring um, uh, an agitator, a critic. These are the things you need to think about. And that often when people are new in their jobs or when they come from a different industry, there's such value perspectives, but we diminish it because we're like, well, we didn't grow up here, or you don't have our kind of expertise. Exactly. Exactly. What a gift. But we don't often see it that way.
0: My favorite quote in your book on one of those black pages that you have is you write that the pace of change will never be slower than it is today. And I'm just thinking for our listeners that agree with that, like myself and th- those that are trying to be creative and be change makers and keep up with the change today. Like, what's your advice for those of us in the thick of it today?
1: Yeah, well, I think just recognize it is, you know, your perception of things uh, moving faster. It's the reality. You perceive it. It's the reality. There's actually some stats that say we're moving uh, in cities. We're walking 10% faster than we were 10 years ago. So yes. it may not even be your imagination. <laughs> But it is moving faster. And a couple of things. I mean, I think it is about adaptability, that sense of getting out and discover. So you're not surprised by things. I always encourage people, think back 10 years ago, what's something that was on the horizon that's now mainstream now? For example, craft beer, organic farming, right? You got to get out and see these things so you're not surprised by them. Realize you're not going to know everything. You're not going to control these things. And I see in companies too many people saying, yeah, but I have to know everything. No, you don't. You can't. You can't possibly be an expert in every sort of change. So find the areas of expertise, the areas you're going to go deep in, and then, you know, depend on your network, your colleagues, your family to help you understand and see other things. Put yourself in situations that that make you feel uncomfortable. Just get out there intentionally. Go see a weird show. Intentionally go read a weird book. Pick up something strange at the airport that you would never read. Just to put yourself in those situations of feeling uncomfortable. Ask yourself what you learned. And then I always like to ask people when I meet them, and rather than, hey, hi, what do you do? What's your title? You know, those are boring questions. Ask people, <laughs> what are you excited about? What, in, what trends are you watching? What's a new thing that surprised you lately? It can be anything. And I, again, I think you're, you're creating this kind of continual filtering mechanism. So you're starting to kind of learn and build these trends. So again, things won't surprise you. And finally, I just say, it's okay to be overwhelmed and you got to take some time out. And I, I think yeah. that rebooting, that chance to unplug, that quiet, thoughtful time, is where cre- that void is where creativity really comes up. So all those connections mean nothing if you don't have time to synthesize them and consider them and kind of wallow in them.
0: Well, I guess before I let you go then, I I will ask what trends are you watching now? What's next for you? What's interesting to you these days? Yeah,
1: well I've been deep in my book, so I can tell you a lot about publishing trends. But <laughs> publishing. I, um, I, I will tell publishing, but I will tell you a couple of things that are on my radar and, and uh, I'm looking forward next year to kinda of get out and back into real discovery mode for myself, figure out what's next. I'm gonna re enter business in a new way. So I'm gonna be figuring that out for myself, but I've been intrigued about, um, with all the avalanche of digitization and information, I'm seeing more and more people consciously seeking out analog experiences, hotels that you Mm. can't find on the Internet, that when you show up, there's no way to be connected. And it's not just a cute little detox weekend. I mean, people like planning those analog experiences as part of their day. I see that especially coming out of Asia, where there's even more digitization. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued about agriculture tech and the future of how we feed ourselves. And I see this really interesting convergence of sort of the craftsmanship of of farming and the software and data coming together. And I think it's going to be very disruptive to sort of the industrial um, agriculture system of of the past hundred years. And much the way we're seeing manufacturing changing that way in a more distributed nature. So those are a couple of things that I'm, uh, I'm intrigued about right now.
0: Yeah, those are interesting trends. We're sort of tracking that, the analog trend as well, the notion that sometimes you just need to be offline in a way, and what does that look like?
1: And create the the experiences for it, right? It's not just I'm in a room unplugged, but how do I take full use of my senses now? Maybe I'm going to just have an auditory experience. Maybe I'm just going to go into a smell zone. I don't know. But it's something that's a more curated, you know, I see all these pop-ups that are happening. I see them a lot in New York, the Museum of Illusion, the museum, you know, the ice cream factory or what, you know, the Museum of Ice Cream. And they're designed for the digital experience. These are very different. You're never going to record these, right? You're not allowed to record it. They're ephemeral. They're not memorialized in any way. It's, It's in your memory. Um, I think you're going to see more of that.
0: Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That was Beth Comstock, former vice chair and chief marketing officer at GE and author of Imagine It Forward. If you haven't read her book, really, I can't recommend it enough. It is so good, authentic, compelling, and also educational. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate it and review it. It helps others find it. And we also think you'd like our conversations with people like Adam Grant, organizational psychologist and author, and Jeff Sutherland, co-creator of Scrum. You can also find those podcasts and more at steelcase.com slash podcasts. I'm Katie Pace. Thanks for listening.